Catholic prayer for the AGMI. Visit about the annual table of SPCA in person. I think it's going down just before uh, the end of 2016, or the end of our stunning SPCA enforcement year. We talk about the invisible hand in compliance, which consists of the continuous improvement loop between regulators and enforcement, companies in response to that enforcement, and how a cutting-edge compliance technique becomes a best practice and then moves to an effective compliance program tool. We talk about the uh, upcoming NFL playoffs. We give some subliminal messages on who you should support. And Jay ends with a preview of his weekend Jay Rosen report. This is Tom Fox. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of This Week in FCPA. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, and welcome to the inaugural 2017 edition of This Week in FCPA with my good friend and colleague, Mr. Translations himself, Jay Rosen. Jay, welcome to 2017. Thank you, Tom. Happy New Year. I'm wishing you and yours a healthy, happy, and prosperous 2017. So in the subliminal message uh, category, we will have several messages along the lines of the following throughout this podcast. How about them Cowboys? So uh, How about them Patriots? So we will subliminally suggest that everyone needs to, uh, to root for the Cowboys going forward, So, it, although it may not be so subliminal. So with that, Jay, um, you know, interesting uh, – not interesting, doesn't even come close to it. Incredible 27, 2016 year in FCPA enforcement. And right at the end of 2016, we had the general cable FCPA enforcement action. And uh, I found this to just be a um, really interesting enforcement action from the compliance practitioner perspective. But I was wondering if you had any initial thoughts on that case as really opposed to you know, what you saw in 2016 generally and even what we both saw the week before Christmas and the start of Hanukkah with Odebrecht and Teva. Well, I think it just really uh, continues on with uh, what the government had been uh, doing for the last year. And, um, you know, it's sometimes when you, you read the charging documents and the MPA and stuff, um, a lot of it seems like it's boilerplate. And um, it's not it's not boilerplate from the uh, governance perspective, but it seems to be boilerplate from how the companies miss these things. And um, I am just always amazed on uh, when we see these uh, resolutions and companies that, um, if I got my facts right, that this stuff at General Cable had its genesis in 2002. And there were folks who did not report or did not take action along the way. So I'm amazed that they got a 50% reduction from the um, from the base fine. So I, I think that's interesting. Um, the other thing that always uh, you know heartens me when I read this is it says here um, it produced the company produced documents for the government, including translations to the DOJ from foreign countries in ways that did not implicate foreign data privacy laws. So um, again, this is another win for cooperation with um, you know, global jurisdictions and finding ways to uh, get the data out and uh, not uh, violate any data, any data privacy laws. So those are my kind of uh, initial takes on it. How about yourself? 
So I thought uh, it really emphasized the cowboys' nature of uh, how uh, the people at uh, General Cable operated, and there were lots of cowboys who were running uh, their business units across the globe. So uh, the 50% discount obviously was very interesting. No cowboys there, but the um, message I got out of that was the DOJ uh, really uh, takes a pilot program to heart, and they really uh, will give significant credit uh, for meeting the four prongs of a pilot program, which are self-disclosure, significant cooperation, extended remediation, and profit disgorgement, in the face of the cowboy-like behavior of General Cable over, as you pointed out, over 10 years, because it started as far back as 0203 and came forward to 2013. So in spite of a bunch of cowboys running the organization, um, they got a huge credit. And drilling down into the specifics, though, from the compliance practitioner perspective, I thought it had some very interesting um, components. You, you correctly noted uh, the translation mentioned specifically, and I set that out today in my blog post about uh, lessons learned for the compliance practitioner. And it once again pointed out that the DOJ's evolution in thinking that you you must have a compliance program for all your employees, uh, English first or English only, even if that's your stated business communication language across your organization, is not going to meet the prescripts of a best practices or even effective compliance program. Second was the, um, the actions of the remediation steps seem to be grouped into three general categories. One was... Uh, termination of both employees involved, the uh, cowboys, and those third parties who were acting like cowboys. The next group was the focus on the cre designing and creating an effective compliance program, including the hiring of a uh, chief compliance officer. And then there was one line in there that I thought was very interesting, which was they talked about training. And they talked about it in a way which we have not seen previously, and they used the word tailored training. Now, obviously, people have been putting on different types of training for different types of employees. So you try to have your high-risk employees receive the most intensive and focused training, and perhaps employees like my wife who does SAP integration for a major oil field service company may need something different or something less. Nevertheless, this was the first time we had seen that, and it made me think that or once again see the hand of the DOJ's Compliance Council, Wei Chin, in putting in not only a more sophisticated compliance program, but a more nuanced program. That ties back into your point, Jay, on the translations uh, and what I see as the DOJ wanting a more nuanced program. And now they're talking about that in multiple different areas of uh, communication, training, how a CCO uh, um, is thought of within the organization in terms of resources and authorities. Uh, so all of that leads me to concluding that Wei Chen has really had a huge effect on the Department of Justice and the way they think about an effective compliance program. Uh, with her hand in this, 
you know, obviously the settlement documents and the resolution documents don't give the author or authors, so we have to assume there are multiple parties drafting and editing these documents. Nevertheless, I see a very strong hand of someone who knows what an effective compliance program is, but someone who also understands what a truly cutting-edge best practices might be, compliance program might be. No cowboys there. And the um, hand of Wei Chen is, I think, moving towards a much more robust compliance program. That has the effect of, you know, rising water uh, uh, raises all boats. And I think it's going to drive the discussion and evolution of compliance forward as well. And then if I could maybe take uh, another step, when uh, neither, I don't think you have presented to the Department of Justice. Uh, if you have, you can correct me, but I have not presented to the Department of Justice. So if neither, neither one of us have presented to the Department of Justice, we certainly know lawyers who have presented to the Department of Justice on uh, their client's behalf. And uh, one of the things that they do in these presentations is uh, try to document to the Department of Justice the innovative ways they are using tools to further compliance in their clients' corporations, as you would expect when you meet with the government to, to try to negotiate down uh, your penalty. All of that is a continuous a loop of improvement. So you have Wei Chen and the, from her compliance counsel role saying you need to do these things more different or better or more nuanced, one, two, three, four, five. You have lawyers presenting to the Department of Justice for clients who are in enforcement action saying, we've done six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Well, at the end of the day, those 10 steps now are, if not cutting edge compliance solutions, they are moving towards best practices. And then they move to the middle of the road and become an effective compliance program. So I see all of this enforcement as a continuous loop, which is improving compliance programs and tying back to your point, once again, on translations, you know, five years ago, uh, that was close to cutting edge. Now it is, uh, if not a best practice, it's just an effective part of your compliance program to translate your key documents for your employee base into their local languages so they can read. And so I really see evolution, uh, continuous improvement in compliance led by the regulators, uh, fed by corporations and people like us trying to communicate that out to a greater compliance world. I totally agree. When you uh, just said, said the invisible hand of Wei Chen, it brought me back to my years ago class in uh, Econ 101. And at that point, we were always talking about a different invisible hand, which was the invisible hand of Adam Smith. And uh, I just kind of looked this up for a second and it said, the invisible hand is a metaphor for how in a free market economy, self-interested individuals operate through a system of mutual interdependence to promote the general benefit of society at large. So, you know, I, I think that's a real apt metaphor on your part, Tom, because it almost does see that if uh, Wei Chen is, is kind of uh, not subliminally, but, you know, quite, uh, you know, uh, not she's, you know, there, there are no, um, I can't speak this morning. It is right out there 
in in view in plain sight for everyone to understand how to do this and to your point, as the government uh, more better clarifies its ex expectations and businesses understand, um, you know, at the end of the day, we get to a point where we're always talking about that, you know, ethics not only should be something that you do because you're supposed to do it, but it can be a key differentiator to make you more successful as a company and to be more profitable. So I think that invisible hand metaphor works both ways. One might even say patriotic. One might even say. So if you want to get rid of the cowboys and move to the patriots, this may be a way for you to do so. Is that kind of what one might draw from your conclusions? Well, I, I think what I was expressing were, were very patriotic views. And, uh, you know, the, the other reminiscent that I, uh, I'm going down memory lane, but I don't know if you were glued to the television yesterday uh, watching uh, Senator McCain's hearings, but it reminded me uh, when I was a, a little wee Patriots fan uh, sitting in my grandfather's shoe store on uh, Main Street in Saco, Maine, and we were watching the Watergate trials, and I was all of eight years old. So I remember saying, uh, Papa, I said, I, I don't like this show. It's very boring. Why do we have to watch it? And why are all these senators on? So um, I'm wondering, uh, you know, is this Watergate Redux? I saw um, uh, Carl Bernstein on one of the shows last night, and he kept talking about following the money. And we often talk about following the money in an investigative uh, context on, you know, how the bribery scheme was perpetrated, you know, who the actors were, where was it funneled. And, um, you know, Bernstein suggested to follow the money. And they said, we really need to see some transparency into uh, president-elect uh, Trump's uh, shareholders or bondholders. And, uh, you know, for him to fly in the face of everything that was mentioned yesterday and, and still side with Julian um, Assange as opposed to our own internal information gathering, um, you know, networks, it, it just seems that, you know, what is the payoff? What does he own Putin? So uh, being the patriot that I am, those are answers and things that I've been thinking about over the past couple of days. So it sounds like um, the Cowboys may be in somebody's future, uh, even as we speak. Well, Jay, uh, I guess fortunately, uh, both of our respective teams are not playing this weekend as they have buys, but we have uh, four games in the NFL playoffs. So the Houston Texans, uh, my hometown team, although not my favorite team, are in one of them um, with uh, – our $72 million man, Brock Osweiler, back at the helm as quarterback. And so I'm going to – woohoo, woo uh, Connor Cook, uh, MSU grad. So, uh, you know, a little love there for uh, one of my uh, co-Spartans is leading the Oakland Raiders coming down to Houston. So, uh, you know, I'm going to have to go with uh, the Texans on that game. But we've also got a couple of other interesting games. We've got the uh, Giants-Packers uh, in a rematch. We have Lions – Seahawks, and we have Dolphin Steelers. Do you have any uh, picks for our uh, audience? Sure. Well, you know, from uh, just uh, a pure Patriots perspective, um, Green Bay will definitely trounce the Giants. <laughs> uh, 
the game is, uh, you know, at home in Green Bay. So it's always tough to win on the frozen tundra. And, um, you know, for our, um, you know, reunion on February 5th, there, is it, is it still Reliant Stadium or is it NRG Field now? Yeah, that's a good question. I guess it's NRG Field. Yeah. So, I mean, for us to have any chance of uh, Patriots and Cowboys, we definitely need the Giants to lose out. And I'm sure you have no love for the New York uh, Giants uh, as well. Um, in terms of Seattle and Detroit, um, Russell Wilson is not uh, at his peak performance. He's been a bit banged up, but he usually seems to be a gamer. Uh, they are missing um, a key safety there, but I think the 12th man in Seattle brings it home. And uh, I'll let you pick Pittsburgh and Miami. What are your thoughts there? Well, I can't see Miami beating Pittsburgh, period. Uh, although I do have to note that uh, in professional football, uh, it's uh, the teams I pull for are, are ranked as of uh, after, of course, the Cowboys, who has whipped the Cowboys. So the Steelers are right up there, so got no love for the Steelers. Uh, in the Giants-Packers, uh, I still remember the 66 and 67 NFL championship games where the Packers beat the Cowboys. So not a lot of love there for the, uh, the Packers. I got to pull for the Giants, even though that may portend uh, invidiousness uh, in Houston with uh, the Patriots. And uh, I don't have to worry about San Francisco this year. And on the, um, I have to agree with you. I think the 12th man will pull, uh, pull Seattle through uh, as well. So, uh, I'm ready to get through this round so we can get to the real games the next weekend. I, I would think on a whole, though, they're, they're not too bad um, with the exception of, um, you know, the, the Houston-Oakland game just seems like it's going to be a defensive struggle because, uh, unfortunately, uh, there's not a lot of offense there. I mean, I, I would love to see uh, Cook, you know, bec become uh, the next Tom Brady. I think that'd be kind of cool just from a, you know, unexpected uh, perspective in the playoffs. But I think Houston's defense is, is going to be tough. And, you know, one thing, um, I don't know what the pundits are saying in Houston, but I believe that, um, are they saying there that Coach O'Brien is on the line, that if he does not win this game, that he's going to get fired? Uh, I had not read that in the Houston paper. I listened to uh, Bill Barnwell's podcast today where they talked about that. So that was a First, I've heard of that. But frankly, I thought his coaching this year has been abysmal. Uh, I blame a lot of Osweiler's problems on the play calling. Uh, so uh, I'm, I'm in that camp. Okay. Because, I mean, the, the other thing that's kind of interesting is to, to get through what they did, even though the division's kind of weak. How early in the season did they lose J.J. Watt? Uh, after the first game. Yeah. So, I mean, you, you got to – give kudos to Romeo Cornell and the defense. And, you know, I guess they say defense wins championships. So all any one of these teams have to do, especially these teams is get hot and go on a three game run. So uh, we've seen stranger things happen. Um, what, what was the big snow game where they came back from? Was that uh, Cleveland and uh, the chargers one year? Uh, were, Buffalo and Cleveland, maybe. Uh, there was a um, Cleveland lost like, to Oakland uh, in one playoff game, and then San Diego went to Cincinnati and lost in a 56-below-degree weather game. Yeah, 
So uh, any, anything can happen there. So speaking of, um, you know, ways for Patriots to get together with those Cowboys, um, which, you know, will ultimately happen with scoreboard. Let's take a, a few minutes and just kind of go through the highlights. Uh, now is, you know, the 2006 review season. I've been um, pulling my way through the Gibson Dunn report. I don't know if you've read any of that, but um, we've had in this last year alone um, four companies uh, get their uh, space on the top ten. So we have Teva coming in at number four, total resolution of $519 million. Uh, the U.S. part of Brass Ken Odebrecht at $419 million. Oxif at $412 million. So those are four, five, and six. And then uh, Vimplecom snuck its way on at three ninety-seven, so three hundred ninety-seven million dollars. So, for a year where um, FCPA was supposed to be dead, uh, they look like from the chart of total value of corporate FCPA monetary resolutions, um, two thousand and sixteen is kissing up to two point five billion, and last year um, we're way south of five hundred million. So. Um, you know, some of the stuff that uh, people tend to forget is that uh, we are just starting to see <clears throat> a lot of resources paying off that have been brought back on, uh, you know, the added FC, FBI, FCPA presence. So um, in the report, um, one of the things that Gibson says is that uh, the FCPA has struck back. So uh, I don't think they ever went away. I, I think it was always there. And when you had a, a smaller staff, it took a lot longer to bring these cases. But uh, now uh, the process, the program is really entrenched. So I think this is really, um, you know, kind of a payoff for the investments that have been made. And uh, I think uh, we continue this aggressive pace. And, uh, you know, there should be some large settlements. We still haven't seen the one from the California company that was hinted at, and we still uh, have to see what happens in terms of the world's largest retailer. So I think uh, a lot happened in 2016, and uh, I'm looking, I'm very interested to see what's going to happen Q1 of this year. So as a famous cowboy once said, FCPA, we hardly knew ye. So uh, I think that's uh, probably a, a great way uh, to end up our first uh, This Week in FCPA podcast in 2017. Well, I, I know for all patriots and cowboys, we, uh, we look forward to uh, a year ahead of us. And um, we thank you for uh, spending a few minutes with us today and looking at the FCPA week that was. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. I'd like to thank you again for listening to this episode of This Week in FCPA. I have two requests of you, if I could. The first is that if you are listening to this podcast on iTunes, if you would rate this podcast, it would greatly help our rankings. The second thing is, if you have any questions you'd like Jay and I to explore in an upcoming episode, please shoot me an email at tfox at tfoxlaw.com or j.rosen at ugl.com. This is Tom Fox. Thank you again for listening to this inaugural 2017 episode of This Week in FCPA. 
This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.